all, I want to add my prayers and thoughts with those of the Christ Journey family. Uh, wherever you're making your connection with us today, Kendall Campus, Gables Campus here in South Florida or across the nation and around the world, many of our prayers and thoughts have turned to our friends and family in California, in uh, Texas, and in Ohio. And I would like for us, as we offer that prayer today, to focus on this truth. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. We got trouble. That means God has not left us. He is present with us. So um, we seek and work for the peace of our cities across our nation. But when pain takes hold of us, we invite God's, God's comfort into that place of pain. So please know of our prayers and of our thoughts toward you today if you're in that situation. I, I think that every parent, every good, healthy parent, wants their children to succeed. Am I right? And so what do parents do? You know what we do. We do whatever we can. We do the best we can to bring them what they need so that they can do that. First, physically, we provide food, clothes, shelter, transportation, whatever it takes to keep body and soul together, right? And then smart parents add to that this education quotient so that knowledge and learning can kick in and, and, uh, and provide opportunity for our kids to develop skills and then get gainfully employed. You know, we add diplomas and degrees and then special training so that uh, our kids then can uh, make their own way in the world, pay their own bills, take care of, uh, get jobs, have careers, and then um, make their way forward. So knowledge helps you think better, and smart parents help their kids get it. But then wise parents, wise parents help their kids get wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge to the next level. Uh, Wisdom is a special kind of knowledge because it adds moral intelligence. Do you agree with this? I know you're, you're processing with me. It adds moral intelligence to knowledge. Knowledge can help you know what to do, but wisdom helps you know the right thing to do at the right time and the right way to do it for the best outcome possible. That's what wise, wise parents want their kids to get wisdom. Um, knowledge helps you think better, but wisdom helps you choose better make better choices. And, um, and that's where, you know, for knowledge, go to college. For wisdom, go to God. And that's where the church factors into the equation because as a church, we help people go to God and grow in God. And if you're a parent concerned here, I'd love for you to know this, that our Think Orange philosophy at Christ Journey Church says that we are here to help parents help their kids grow at every age and stage of life. So if you're part of helping that happen within the life of our church, thank you so much for that. But healthy parents know this. Good, smart, wise parents uh, help their children rise and then succeed in life and with God. And Jesus, as a spiritual parent, is no different. He wants to help every one of his children attain lift so that they can rise and succeed in life with God. And uh, that's significant because getting airborne really matters in a world that is filled with such ferocity when it comes to gravitational pull. 
the gravitational pull, the forces of gravitational pull, not just the physical forces of it, but I'm talking about the social and cultural forces of gravitational pull in this world are always down, aren't they? They're ferocious, and they want to pull us down, keep us down, put us down. And, um, and so it, when you're living in that kind of world, how do you find lift? Gravity never pulls you up. It takes you down. So when we live in a world filled with that kind of gravitas that is pulling us down, where do we find lift? Jesus wants his people to know. And so that's where we're going with this series. Part of that knowledge is dealing with the uh, gravity of our situation. We talked about that a little in the previous series. The gravity of our situation, the gravitational forces that try to pull us down. Now, here's what parents also know, though, that just possessing knowledge and wisdom is never enough to create lift. It must be applied, right? You can have the best map ever made and still be going nowhere. That right? Until you follow the map, until you apply the knowledge, until you step into the wisdom. You can own the best soap ever made and still be dirty unless you wash, you know, unless you apply it. So applying wisdom is what we're talking about, unless you use it. So where do we learn to put our intel, all that we're gathering in our knowledge and in our provision and in our wisdom, where do we learn how to apply it? The answer is testing in testing. Parents, coaches, trainers, mentors, they all know this. For wisdom to work, it's got to be tested. It's got to be put to the test. And when it's put to the test and passes the test, then you find lift. So you don't rise, here's my contention, you don't rise by avoiding the tests. You rise by facing them and then applying what you're learning. And that's why we have tests in life. We have tests at school. We take tests for driver's license. We take tests for training so we can advance at work and get on the new learning curve there, you know. And there are tests in your spiritual life. God lets our faith be tested as his children through situations and questions that create opportunity for what? Applying wisdom, applying knowledge, putting to the test what you think you know so that it can be transformed into lift, zero gravity, that then helps you go airborne. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus, our spiritual father, our spiritual parent, does it with his disciples. They've been with him for almost three years. They've been watching, they've been uh, listening, they've been learning. They, uh, they have walked and talked and served all over Galilee. I mean, and they've seen these amazing miracles. He's fed thousands of people. They tasted the fish and the bread. They, they, he's, uh, he's healed bodies that were sick. They saw it happen right in front of them. They, uh, they saw him walk on water. What was that, right? They've seen him cast out demons from people's bodies and even restore the dead. And they're still talking about how that all happened. You know they are, three years in. And then they've heard the stories. The Gospels say that Jesus never spoke without telling a story. So they've heard the stories. They saw him challenge the hypocrisy of the self-righteous, and they saw him forgive all kinds of sins. 
for all kinds of people who were in all kinds of trouble. And he's also taken them like behind the curtain to see the why behind the what. We've been talking about the what, but Jesus took them into this why space, like tried to help them understand what it means. <laughs> what, is, what is the meaning of the message and the miracles and the ministry? And now all of that training, imagine this, all of that training from these three years, it's like graduation is coming here, um, is coming to a special moment in time at a special place of testing. Caesarea Philippi. Way up in northern Israel, it was known to be one of the most pluralistic and polytheistic environments in the entire nation. It was mostly non-Jewish. And archaeologists have uncovered ruins to like 14 different temples to all kinds of pagan gods from Syria, from Greece, from Rome. Uh, the pagan god Pan, the god of nature, was le legend had it that he was born in that place, Caesarea Philippi. The temple to the worship of political power is there as well. Caesar's Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, the temple to Rome's Caesar is there. And so what we're seeing is this microcosm of the great big world out there right here all crammed in concentrated form at Caesarea Philippi uh, with many gods to pick from in an area that's just teeming with idolatry and immorality and I'm telling you it's enough to make any local monotheistic Jewish boy feel nervous. What are we doing here? Precisely. What are they doing there? Well, let's listen to the story, Matthew chapter 16, and find out. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesar's Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. What about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? We don't know if it happened like that. We don't know if there was a quiet moment. We don't know if the light suddenly came on. But Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then we don't know what happened next either. You know, what was like the air sucked out of the group or was like everybody going, well, yeah, you know, what, what was happening there? And yet, here's what Jesus said. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this wasn't revealed to you by man. You didn't think this up by yourself. We all know you. We know you're not that smart. But by my Father in heaven, and I tell you, you're Peter. That word means a small stone. But on this rock, that means a foundation boulder, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, and I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Amazing text. But here's the scenario. They're in the last year of a three-year ministry with Jesus. Every day they've been with him, and here now he's, he's got, these are the young leaders that he's been training, um, and he brings them to a most disturbing place, the most pagan place in all of Israel, a virtual garden of the gods with all the alternatives of the day in their culture right there, and he asked them two questions. It's a test scenario, isn't it? 
what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? And, uh, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, you just heard the story, so you know the answer. But here's the question. Who is Jesus really? People are still asking that in our day. All the major news magazines still print stories out like, who is Jesus? And you've probably wondered too, haven't you? Even if you've grown up reading the book in the church, whatever, but who is he really? Really? Who is Jesus? And here we get to see not only Simon's revelation, but Jesus' self-awareness. I mean, it's as plain as day. He literally agrees with Peter. <laughs> it's like, you're on to it. He's not another one among many in the pantheon of gods available in the world. What Jesus says is, one of a kind, true son of the true living God, the one living God. Now, he didn't say that because he's narcissistic. This is the testimony of time and of the apostles. It's my belief, too. He didn't say it because he's out of his mind or because he's some sort of slick, liar, con man politician looking to build his treasure chest. No. He said it because it's true. And not merely his truth. It's like true truth. When it's put to the test, this is what you will find is true. He is the Christ. Here they are in the midst of all of these alternative worldviews and every other position that you can imagine in Israel represented in the pagan world and they are invited to weigh what they know about him in light of all of that, what you've experienced. What's your conclusion? He says, you're, you're the Christ. And that came to light in the hour of testing. Isn't that where your faith is put to the test too? In a place where other so-called gods are also put to the test. Here's one thing we know about the world. It puts whatever you're trusting to the test. Is that right? Whatever you're trusting to solve your problems, whatever God, quote, you're turning to, is going to be put to the test. And the gravitational forces of this life in culture are going to weigh in, and then they're going to test every potential solution that you turn to. Every, quote, God, close quote, that you trust is going to be put to the test. So, listen, it's not my purpose today to try to do comparative religions here about how the alternatives stack up to Jesus and why you should trust him. No, no, no. What I want us to see is what is Jesus up to with his disciples? Why did he take them there? I think he's using the test to give them opportunity to feel the spiritual gravity of this world. It's crazy. It's hard. It's competitive. It's full of conflict and chaos. He wants them to go there, feel the gravitas of the world, and then prepare for the coming storms because they were coming. Some years ago in Honduras, every storm that would blast through the nation would take out every bridge that they had. The Japanese offered to build them a bridge that would withstand any storm, and so they did. The Chulateca Bridge, you can look it up online, Hurricane-proof bridge, and then Hurricane Mitch came through. Category 5 winds, 175 miles per hour. What happened? Well, just like they said, the bridge stood. But guess what happened? It moved the river. It 
Now they've got a bridge to nowhere. Irrelevant to the river and unhelpful to people. That happens in life, doesn't it? Sometimes we think that the way to respond to the challenges that are coming at us is just to stand our ground. I mean, use the gravitational forces to our advantage and build the heaviest bridge you can. Don't move. Only what the problem is, the Japanese builder found out that um, you risk losing the ability to stay relevant. And it happens to churches too. We churches seek to build strong cultural bridges to our world that can be helpful to people and keep the good news of Jesus relevant to the needs of people. And we build a strong bridge that they can cross, but then over time, you know what happens is um, we start to realize that it's not working like it used to. And what we need is something that's both strong but also dynamic that can move with the river, that's what a bridge, that's what gives bridges their meaning. And so strong and dynamic. Maybe a storm-proof, a storm-proof bridge that could also move when the river moves, but have stability in the midst of it that could continue to lift those who travel it above the destruction, give them a sense of being airborne, of, uh, of zero gravity when G-forces are trying to take us down. I think that's what Peter's testimony was about in Matthew chapter 16. He's saying, we've found something in you that is going to equip us for a world like this. And we can summarize it in two action statements. If you want to apply them immediately, I would invite you to consider that. The first one is this, honor Jesus Christ as Lord. And the second one is, use your keys. Honor Jesus Christ as Lord and use your keys. You want to stay relevant. You want to stay vibrant in a world that is teeming with false gods, with fake news, with chaos and conflict, with political upheaval, with social unrest, with competing worldviews, culture, with cultural pressure, then here's the answer. Jesus suggests and that Peter said, honor Jesus Christ as Lord and then use your keys. So what do you, how do you honor Jesus Christ as Lord? How do you honor Jesus as the Christ? Well, it means you respect him as the Messiah that God foretold. And the reason we come to respect him as the Messiah God foretold is because of the, what he said, what he did, how he lived, and the result of his life and death and resurrection. That's what Simon Peter is looking at him and saying, son of the living God. What that means is you are the true God in the flesh. There's only one true God. You're not one among many. You're one of a kind. When I stack everything up against what I know about you and my investigation, what he says is, you're the Christ. So, and this is what Jesus self-affirms in his declaration. He says, you know, that comes from my Father in heaven. So it's like there's, Jesus is being very clear about his identification here. If you card Jesus, it's going to say right there on the card, true son of the true living God. My Father in heaven is what Jesus is saying. So, you know, the Scripture doesn't give us like gestures in conversations, but I'm imagining when I hear Jesus say, you know, you're, you're Peter, points at him and says, you know, that's a small stone. But upon this rock, and I can see him gesturing, upon this rock, this foundation boulder, I'm going to build my church. That makes sense to me. He's talking about himself. I'm the builder here, and I'm the foundation here, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's the place of the dead. Now, you want to know what? The ultimate gravity of this life that's pulling all of us down 
to the grave. That's the gravitas of our situation. We all have an appointment with the grave. And Jesus says, it's not going to stop my church. That's what's going on here. Everybody's on their way down in response to this gravitational pull, but people who trust me are going to find lift. We're going to move into zero gravity and head airborne. That Jesus is alive, and because Christ comes alive in you, then when he lifts, so do you. And that makes you part of the living, breathing body of Christ in facing the gravitas of our world situation. When it gets as bad as it possibly can get. Here's what Revelation 1, Jesus says there. I am the living one. (laughs) And I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death. So when we get confused about whose church it is, and we do, we get confused. We think it's somehow ours to control. It dies. We've limited it to our limited lives and perspective. And then when, when we die, it dies too. But when we honor Jesus as Lord of the church, risen Lord, triumphant over it, and we honor him, guess what? The church rises just as he does because you rise as he rises in you. So I got to ask you, look at your hands right now real quickly. You see any holes there? It's not your church. The one who took scars for the sins of humanity said, this is my church and I'm going to build it. So, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not a part of his church. It doesn't mean that you can't have opinions about his church. It can't, doesn't mean you can't have preferences in it. It doesn't mean that there's stuff that happens that you wish never happened. It doesn't mean that you wish stuff would happen that never seems to happen. It just means that it's not your church. It's not my church. In all of my ministry, this is a pet peeve of mine, I have never said, oh, yeah, my church, because it's not my church. When I was pastoring in Texas, in Oklahoma, in Arkansas, and in Miami, I've never said, oh, this is my church. It's not my church. I don't want to stand before Jesus and say, did you see my church? You know what he's going to say? You got scars in your hands. It's not your church. You can serve my church, but it's not your church. You know what? It's not a congregation's church. It's not a single denomination's church. It's not a certain generation's church. It's not the nation's church. It's Jesus' church. And when we get confused about whose church it is, we're in idolatry territory. We're in idolatry territory when we can confuse. Jesus took him to a pagan place. He said, you know who I am. But when we honor Jesus as Lord of the living Son, the living God, Son of the, the living Son of the living God, then guess what? We get liftoff. <laughs> and we get airborne because as he rises, so do we because he's alive. So what does it mean to honor Jesus as Lord? This is my take. It means follow his commands. It means pursue his purpose. Churches should be fulfilling his purpose. It means embrace his passion. It means achieve his mission. That his will is what we exist to fulfill in his church. We want to do what he wants. We don't want to just do what we want. We want to accomplish what he wants. And what he wants is for us to love one another. Not what he said. I'm giving you a greater command. Love one another as I have loved you. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said if you keep my commandments, you will be 
if you love one another, you'll be keeping my commandments. And if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We're here to forgive and respect one another. We're here to fulfill the great, greatest commandment. Love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're here to, to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what Jesus wants. That's how the world will know that we're his, that we love one another. That's what Jesus said. That's why we are part of his church. Jesus said, the Great Commission, he said, now I want you to go and I want you to make disciples, spread this good news to every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every person in the entire face of the world. He's telling them, don't leave anybody out. Jesus wants his leaders, church leaders, to hitch their wagon. He wants you as a part of his church to hitch your wagon to God's star and then find liftoff as he takes us into the future. This is how we build a strong bridge that lives and moves and still stays airborne in a world of chaos. So bottom line, Christianity is not simply a philosophy of life. There are other worldviews that are. They give you a philosophy to believe in. Christianity is not simply a religion that says, follow these rules and practice these rituals. Christianity is Christ. It's having a relationship, a personal relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ, a personal faith in the living God. And as you honor him in your personal relationship with him, then you will find God's lift. Second, use your keys. Use your keys. Jesus said, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, what do you have keys for? Well, to lock stuff up. Your, your, your precious goods, your office, your, your files, whatever, you lock them up. Uh, or to uh, find some more freedom. You start your car up and head off. Or you open the, car do I mean, open the house door and you enjoy the inside. You know, it, we use keys to uh, secure things and to release things. Jesus said that's what his keys are to do too. Secure and release. The Christian life here's my summary, is a matter of knowing Jesus Christ in a personal relationship of faith that then empowers you to triumph over sin and death, because the gates of Hades will not prevail, and then do his will, and then help other people find security in salvation and freedom from sin and death as they find and follow Christ. Now, why does that apply to us in particular today? I'll tell you why. Because death is going to knock on everybody's door. The gravitas of that situation is going to come to roost at every home and every life. And I'm telling you, those people in California, we're just going to a garlic festival to taste some garlic. The people in El Paso were just going shopping at Walmart so that they could get back to school supplies for their kids. The people in Dayton were just having a night on the town in downtown. I don't think anybody got up saying, well, today's my day. And I'm telling you, we oppose that type of violence. We don't want to see it happen. We want peace in our cities. But when pain comes, our role is to have used our keys so that other people find out when they are being drawn down by the G-force into the grave that they've found something that can give them lift on the other side. That's the zero gravity, Jesus says. The world's got to know. And I'm giving you the keys so that they can help. So how do you use your keys? When you share your story about the difference faith is making for you, about your relationship with Jesus Christ, with somebody else, you're using your key. 
When you offer to have prayer for somebody, to invite God's blessing upon somebody who's struggling in a, in a place of need, when you invite somebody to your group or to Sunday worship experience, when you share the gospel or you help somebody know how, it came, how Christ came alive in you and what difference does it make for you, you're using your keys. Jesus said, you know, use your keys. When you choose peace over anger, when you choose love over hate, when you keep your word, when you decide to practice patience, when it looks like everybody else is flying off at the handle, then you're using your keys. When we live with self-control and with kindness, you're binding evil and you are using your keys. Have you ever wanted to feel more God in your life? Have you personally ever wanted to experience more transcendence in your daily experience? Jesus got something for you here. You want to feel more eternity in your mortality? It's interesting. It doesn't show up in English translation. But in the, in the Greek language here, there are two different tenses being used. Jesus says this. Whatever you bind, use your keys. Whatever you bind shall have been bound in heaven. Present tense, whatever you bind in the present tense, shall have been bound, future perfect tense, in eternity. It's a conflicting time frame here. What, how does that work? He says, whatever you loose in present active here in your life with your keys shall have been loosed in heaven. How does that work? And somebody's thinking, well, it's probably predestination. You know, God's already foreordained all of that. No, he's saying you have the free will to make a present active choice in your life right now to use your keys. And when you do, here's what's going to happen. The God who exists beyond time is going to make himself known within time because you've used your keys. Let me try to say it one other way. I don't know, I had a friend who told me one time, you know, I don't know all the difference between this predestination and free will and election, but here's what I know. I keep nominating them, and God keeps electing them. That's using your keys. You use your keys to share God's story in Jesus Christ, and he brings them into his family, and eternity invades time, and, uh, and lives change, and lift off comes. Now, a very strange verse comes next. Verse 20. This is very curious. After Jesus tells them this whole thing, you know what he says? Now, don't tell anybody. What? What? Verse 20, don't tell anybody. What are you talking about? I think it's a matter of timing. They haven't been to Jerusalem yet. And when this news goes public that Jesus has made this claim, then you know what's going to happen the cross, and it'll happen fast. It was a matter of timing, as in fact, it does happen. Jesus himself declares it to the corrupt religious leaders. Yes, it is as you say, I am. And Jesus himself declares it to the crooked political leader of the day. So you do have a kingdom. Yep, my kingdom is not of this world. Yep, he's made his declaration there, right? And in response, what do they do? They put him on a cross. They beat him to a pulp, they put him on a cross, they lay him in a grave. And then what does God do? Zero gravity. <laughs> Lift off. You know, here we go. God's not done. And then he tells his disciples, this is what Jesus says, the risen Christ with the scars in his hands. He says, now you guys, would you spread it around? Would you look at your hands one more time? Imagine this, the nail-scarred hands dropping the keys 
right there in your hands. Jesus said, I'm giving you the keys. It's not your church. It's my church. But you know what? I'm going to let you drive. Who's the best bridge, the living bridge into your world? You are. And Jesus says, I'm going to go with you there. You take my story, and you're going to help set somebody free. And then you're going to help them find security in me. So whatever happens, even the worst that this world gives will not stop the liftoff that I have in store. You pray with me. What's God saying to you? Is it time to use your keys, friend? To believe that Jesus is the Christ, the true son of the true living God, the one of a kind, the not one among many. Our world is full of alternatives. And the chaos and clamor and clutter and confusion is everywhere. It's a time of testing, isn't it? But Jesus said, when you're in a test, you can apply the knowledge and wisdom I've given you. How? Honor me as your Lord and use your keys. Is there somebody he wants you to pray for right now? Somebody that you could be, that you're loving, that you're caring for, that you could share your story with, and you'd say, Lord, use me. And perhaps for you today, friend, you, you came at the invitation of somebody who cares about you and who would love to see you find the freedom that they've experienced. They, they just don't know completely how to say it or but, but you accepted the invitation. Thank you so much for being here. But maybe this is why God has you here today, is so that you could get to know him in a personal way and take your first step today. So if that might be you, then this might be a prayer that God could use to help you take that next step. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I believe you are the living son of the living God. And that on the cross, you offered yourself so that my sins would not be an obstacle between us anymore. Forgive my sins. Come into my life. I'm turning from my way to learn how to follow your way and ask you to lead me now to become the person you would have me be. Our heads are still bowed for a moment, but if you prayed that prayer with me and would let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps of faith, then I want to invite you simply to raise your hand and hold it up for a moment wherever you're joining us. If you're online, then just click that opportunity right there on the page in front of you, and we're praying with you. At Kendall Campus, our pastor's watching and praying now, and right here at Gables, likewise. To my right, I'm seeing you to the front, in the middle, right down here in the front. God bless you, sir. To my, to my right again, toward the back, amen. And over to my left, God bless you. Thank you. Amen. Lord, for each person who by uplifted hand is saying, I'm taking the step of faith. I want to begin my personal relationship with you today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would bring peace and joy and assurance, the freedom that comes from being forgiven and the security that comes from knowing you are alive in them. May it happen now as we make our prayer in your name. Amen.